0: Anne Boleyn must rate as one of the most misunderstood figures in British history and also one of the most mispronounced. She probably would have called herself Anne Bullen. She's possibly also one of the most overrated.
1: We've been asking why Henry VIII broke with the Church of Rome and we've been deciding that it had much less to do with Anne Boleyn than people have always thought. Now we know that Anne has a lot of fans but the more we understand this story the more we've come to think of her as a MacGuffin.
0: A MacGuffin? as those of you who are film fans will know, and especially if you're fans of Hitchcock, it's something that's, well, necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but which is unimportant in itself. And that seems to us perfectly to sum up Anne Boleyn's role in Henry's break with Rome. She was a MacGuffin. Not convinced? Well, let us try to persuade you. Hello.
1: The memory of Anne Boleyn has changed and evolved over time. There's a very readable account of just when and how by historian Susan Bordeaux. You can find details of it on our website. But we should get one thing clear straight away. The traditional story has always been that Anne refused to become Henry VIII's mistress, that she held out on him from 1526 or 1527 until she became pregnant in late 1532. So a young lady's maid at court held out on England's most irascible king for five, if not six years. Well, if that sounds romantic but unlikely
0: to you, then you'd be right. More than ten years ago, the historian George Bernard came across a document sent by Henry to the Pope in the summer of 1527. In it, Henry asked the Pope's permission to marry a woman. He can only mean, from the circumstances of the document, Anne Boleyn. And Henry confesses plainly to the Pope he's already been sleeping with her. So there's now no longer any serious debate among historians. We now know pretty much for certain that Anne Boleyn did not hold out on Henry. She'd been another mistress in his bed from the start.
1: In fact, the story that she held out on Henry for six years until he married her was invented in 1536 by Reginald Poole, a Catholic theologian and cousin of the king. Now we talk about all of this a bit more in our series on Henry's break with Rome. What Reginald Poole was trying to do at the time of Anne's disgrace and execution was to invent a way in which Henry could return to the Roman Catholic Church without losing faith. He should blame Anne, say it had all been her fault. But even though, as we shall see, Henry wanted to obliterate every trace of Anne's memory, he refused to accept Poole's story. Well, He'd been sleeping with Anne from the start and you'd guess that everyone at court knew it.
0: Poole's story, however, later on began to become popular. Early in the reign of Elizabeth I, who was Anne's daughter, the highly Protestant polemicist John Fox set out to turn Anne into a virtuous Protestant heroine. He claimed that it had been Anne who had first drawn Henry to Protestantism. Fox claimed that, quote, "...the entire nation is indebted to her for its Protestant religion." Well, of course, it isn't difficult to see why he tried to say that. Queen Elizabeth was Anne's daughter, and she was a convinced Protestant. Historians have long known, in fact, that at the time Fox was writing, she was having a very hard time of it, trying to persuade the rest of her people to abandon their Catholicism. So Fox's attempt to turn the Queen's mother into a well-behaved Protestant martyr and her father into a Protestant pioneer were good propaganda, however untrue they were. We know that the Berlin's possessed a few Protestant books. It's also possible that Anne had come across some early reforming ideas while she was growing up in France. But there's no evidence at all that except for a few brief and disastrous months after Anne died, Henry himself was ever interested in Protestantism, and the Protestantism of those months had much more to do with Thomas Cromwell than it ever had to do with Anne. Henry broke with the Pope,
1: but in every other way he died a practising Catholic. Anne had not been the virtuous Protestant heroine Fox tried to make her out to be. She'd been Henry's mistress and does not seem to have had any influence on his religion at all. But once, in Elizabeth's time, the myths started collecting around Anne and her relationship with Henry,
0: they just kept growing. The Protestant recasting of Anne in Elizabeth's reign provoked an inevitable reaction from Catholic writers. Most notorious was the English Catholic priest Nicholas Sander, he created the image of Anne as a witch, hideous and deformed. Annual Spanish Corpus Christi processions still have a float of a monster, Talasca, ridden by Anna Bolena, a tiny figure of a girl. Extraordinary. After Elizabeth's death, Anne faded for a while from view. Shakespeare's Henry VIII was performed at the Globe Theatre in 1613. The performance on the 29th of June that year is its most famous. When the king makes his entrance for a mask, some sort of courtly entertainment, near the end of Act I, stage cannon let off wadding from one of them sets the thatched roof of the theatre alight. Within minutes, the entire theatre burns down. No one's hurt that one man's breeches have to be put out with a pot of ale. But when you read the play, you discover that Anne hardly speaks. Instead, her whole relationship with Henry has become a sexual joke, laced with double entendre. During her coronation, in Shakespeare's play, one character smirks that she is, "quotes the goodliest woman that ever lay by a man. Well, you can hear the audience snigger. Later, Henry explains that he asked for a divorce when, quote, my conscience first received a tenderness, scruple and prick. Another guffaw from the groundlings. Now, it's true that Anne herself appears in the play as an ambiguous character, part saint, part whore. But all the earnest Protestantism has been forgotten. Anne and Henry have mostly become a smutty comedy. The English Reformation, a bedroom farce. By the 1660s,
1: one of Henry's expansive suits of armour was on display at the Tower of London. Girls were taken to see it. They would take out a pin and stick it into the armour's large red-lined codpiece. Then they would go away laughing that now they would definitely get pregnant. By the 1730s, someone had even rigged up a mechanism so that as the girls approached, the armour's skirts would clang open and present them with the codpiece to prick. Henry VIII had become a figure of fun who, the guides intoned, never spared woman in his lust. The extraordinarily named Restoration satire, Dido Talks and Acts Like a Fishwife, would sum it up. As old Babylon saith, the Protestant faith took deep root from the codpiece of
0: Harry. <laughs> By this time, Anne was appearing in fairy tales as a beautiful, clever, generous girl who defies her wicked, lustful king. But by the time the first biography appeared, 1821, Anne is back to being the Protestant heroine. Elizabeth Benger's Memoirs of the Life of Anne Boleyn gives her the credit all over again for bringing about the Reformation in England. Well, many Victorians agreed. By now, Anne is not only a religious reformer, she's also a witty and charming young thing when Samuel Gardner, one of the greatest Victorian historians, wrote his English history for students in 1881, intended for the new history classes in schools, he pictured Berlin as, quotes, a sparkling beauty. In
1: 1912, Mary Bradley's novel The Favour of Kings imagined Anne as a feisty young girl whose tragedy was to be the centre of a conspiracy to control the king led by her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. Now, that was the story made popular in 2008 by the film The Other Berlin Girl.
0: The reality had been that by the time Henry took an interest in her, Anne Boleyn, at the age of 26 or so, would have been regarded at the Tudor court as a spinster, marked out only by her odd French manners. There's no contemporary evidence at all that she was a particular beauty. The Dean of Westbury was once put on the spot during a diplomatic mission in the Netherlands. Who was better looking, they asked him, Anne Boleyn or Elizabeth Blunt, Henry's former mistress and the mother of his son, Fitzroy? The flustered Dean mumbled that, well, Anne was uh, not so much pretty as, well, more eloquent and graceful and, well, really more handsome than Bessie. All the things that matter. Cardinal Woolsey, who, contrary to later rumour, got on perfectly well with Berlin, called her Henry's Midnight Crow.
1: Contemporary ambassadors do give accounts after seeing her at court. But unlike Catherine, Anne never received ambassadors formally in her own right. So most of what they have to say is gossip or just highly critical. Those who left the largest collections of papers, the French ambassador Jean du Bellay and Charles V's ambassador Eustace Chapuis, both disliked Anne intensely. Henry destroyed every scrap of paper to do with Anne he could lay his hands on after her death. There aren't even any contemporary portraits. You just have to face up to the fact that when it comes to Anne Boleyn, we know hardly anything for certain. It's as if, after nearly five centuries, Anne Boleyn's reputation just goes on flitting in and out of sight, like an unquiet ghost.
0: Trying to piece together a biography of Anne Berlin is a detective story, hunting for scattered clues on the trail of a missing suspect. If you want a common-sense academic biography that works intelligently with the evidence, then George Bernard's is probably your best bet. He's the man who finally established beyond serious doubt that Anne and Henry were sleeping together from the start. Just about the earliest trace we have of Anne is in 1513 or 1514, when she was sent to the Burgundian court in Antwerp as a feed d'honneur, a maid of honour. Now the Burgundian court have for generations been the fashionable place to go and Anne's father, Thomas Boleyn, who was then a minor English courtier, probably thought it was the best finishing school for his daughters. George Bernard puts the typical age when you feed on her at 12 or 13 and that puts Anne's date of birth in 1501. Well, it's the best guess we have. What we can probably say anyway is that she can't have been much younger than that.
1: Anne only stayed in Burgundy for a year and was then sent to the French court, where her sister Mary, yes, the other Berlin girl, was already a maid to the new 19-year-old French queen. This queen was in fact Henry's sister, Mary Tudor. Yes, I know too many Marys. And she'd just been married to the elderly King Louis the Twelfth. He was 30 years older than her, and she was his third wife. Mary Tudor's marriage only lasted three months before Louis died. Some said it was through overexerting himself in bed. Poor Mary. Henry sent his best friend, Charles Brandon, over to fetch Mary back so that she could be got ready for some new diplomatic match. What it was to be a princess. Brandon was only 12 years older than Mary and was a well-known jouster. In fact, he jousted at her marriage celebrations to Louis XII. Well, while he was at the French court, Brandon, rather unaccountably, married Mary himself. Some said the new French king, Francis, who was about the same age as Brandon, put him up to it. The French king would certainly have been delighted to stop Henry's sister marrying into some other European royal family and making an alliance against him. At all events, the couple went back to England, where Henry appears to have accepted their excuses. He made his old pal, Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk. and The couple went on being among the most important influences at Henry's court. Understandably, after her brief French escapade, Mary Brandon was always known at Henry's court as the
0: French Queen. But the point of this story is that the Suffolks, Henry's sister Mary and his best friend Brandon, don't seem to have had any time for Anne. When they'd come back from France, they'd brought Mary Boleyn with them, but they left Anne behind. Now, maybe that was because she was only 14, and Claude, the wife of the new French king, was about 16. Anne went to work in Claude's household as a lady's maid. But it is interesting that the Suffolk's later loudly supported Catherine of Aragon against Anne. And Mary Tudor, who, unlike Anne, was respectfully treated by the French as a signing board in Henry's court, clearly shared the French court's dislike of Anne as Henry's mistress. Anyway, back to Anne, age 14. Here she was staying at the French court, almost unnoticed. Lady's maids at court might hope to pick up a good marriage. But as the daughter of a small-time English courtier, Anne wasn't much of a catch. After all, England and France were at war for much of the time she was there. Seven years went by, apparently without any prospect of either promotion or marriage.
1: Anne may have travelled with Queen Claude to the field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520 and perhaps met her parents there. They had both come over with Henry and Catherine. If she did, it was probably the first time she'd seen them, or at least her mother, in seven years. The next year, 1521, Anne was at last called back to England. The reason wasn't that her parents wanted her back particularly, but that Cardinal Wolsey had come up with the idea of marrying Anne off to an Irishman, James the Lame Butler. It's a complicated story about trying to reconcile the butlers and the Boleyns' rival claims to an important Irish title. But in the end, the marriage idea came to nothing. Why? Because Anne's father took the title for himself.
0: By now, the English and French were at war again and Anne couldn't be sent back to France. So she now got a job in Catherine of Aragon's household. Her mother probably pulled some strings, since she was the sister of the Duke of Norfolk and already worked there. Historian Barbara Harris has recently taken us into this hidden world, Step past the two guards and almost everything is run by women. Catherine had 33 female attendants, more than any previous queen. Many of these women spent a lifetime at court and built careers out of it. Girls usually joined at about 16, hoping eventually to earn the title of Maid of Honour, while Anne was already 20 when she started her job. Some found a rich husband and got out. In 1520, Anne's sister, for example, had married William Carey, who was another expert chester and distantly related to the earls of Northumberland. Other women, like Anne's mother, married but then stayed and went on to become ladies-in-waiting. At about the time Anne joined the court, her sister, Mary Boleyn, began her well-known affair with the king. She and her new husband were generously compensated with gifts of land. Maybe it tells us something about Anne that Henry preferred the older Boleyn girl, even though her recent marriage made his affair with her rather awkward and expensive.
1: Sometimes we're told that Anne captured the king's affection because she was, quote, passing excellent in singing and dancing and played the lute, harp and rebeck, a sort of early violin. She's supposed to have caught the king's eye when she acted in court disguisings. But this is a case of making too much out of a single piece of evidence because so little else has survived about her. Disguisings were lavish court entertainments. Henry took a leading role and other parts were played by his young male courtiers who besieged mock castles defended by young women, pelting them with fruit. Foreign ambassadors described disguisings at the English court as fabulous occasions in which they had the chance to dance with the beautiful people.
0: The first record, in fact, we have of Anne Boleyn at Henry's court was in a pre-Lent Shrove-Tide disguising in 1522. Uh, Not 1523, as some historians suppose. She appeared as one of eight Lady Virtues, defending their honour against Henry and his crew, who were disguised as amorousness, nobleness, youth and other manly qualities. Anne played Perseverance. Perhaps at the age of 22, and two years after her sister's marriage, with no match in sight for herself, someone thought it might be good casting. That's mean. But if Anne shone as Perseverance, and we don't have any evidence at all that she did, the disguising soon petered out after that. They'd been produced and designed by William Cornish, master of the children of the Chapel Royal. But Cornish died in 1523, and no one seems to have risen to the challenge in the same way. There's no record anyway that Anne ever appeared in one again, at least until her appearance in Calais in 1532. Her one and only moment at the English court had anyway come just when Henry was starting his relationship with her sister. So it's pretty clear that Henry didn't fall in love with Anne Boleyn because she was the star of court entertainments.
1: There's a story that Anne now fell in love with Henry Percy, her brother-in-law's cousin. Percy was heir to the earldom of Northumberland, one of the most strategically important titles in the north of England. Later on, there was a rumour that Anne and Percy informally agreed to marry. There's no evidence it's true. All we know is that by the time in 1527 Henry wrote to the Pope about Anne to say he was sleeping with her and had slept with her sister and now wanted to marry Anne, he reported that Anne had previously been engaged to someone. Well, Henry may have been referring, of course, to the Irishman James the lame butler, or to Henry Percy. The engagements were almost as serious as marriages and had to be declared to the Pope so that he could issue a dispensation from them.
0: Much later rumours also claimed that it was Wolsey, or even Henry himself, who stepped in to prevent Anne from marrying Percy. But it seems much more likely, if she did ever get into an affair with Percy, that it was Percy's father who'd stopped it. After all, Anne fell far below the status to marry his son, Anyway, he'd already lined up a very suitable marriage with a girl from the Earl of Shrewsbury's family. It sealed an alliance between two of Northern England's most powerful families. It was a major boost for the security of England's northern border. The other rumour from the mid-1520s is that another courtier, Thomas Wyatt, wrote love poems for Anne. But, well, Wyatt was a well-known poet, and his work is shot through with expressions of courtly love, which didn't signify there's anything romantic in the poet's mind. Anyway, even if there was. Anne apparently ignored him. So by 1526 Anne was still a humble lady's maid, probably around 25 years old, the kind of age when ordinary farming girls were getting married, but a good ten years after the second daughter of a gentry family should have been finding a match. Suddenly that year, according to some historians, she caught the eye of the king.
1: Some historians say Anne's affair with Henry began in the spring of 1526. Their evidence is that at the Shrove Tide Joust that year, Henry tilted under the banner of a flaming heart and the French motto, "Declare genoux, I dare not declare." Now it looks to us that because of European events, Henry began to distance himself from Catherine in 1524, and that the breach became wider after the Battle of Pavia in 1525. We believe that Henry's interest in Anne looks very much like a ploy, part of his shift away from the Spanish and towards the French. After all, Anne Boleyn was the most Frenchified woman at the English court, even more French than the so-called French queen, Henry's sister Mary Brandon. So it is possible that Henry was flirting with Anne by Shrovetide
0: 1526. But this looks altogether like another example of taking one stray piece of evidence and building an entire legend out of it. After all, the king's new jousting rig doesn't prove anything, could have had his eyes on any one of the maids at court, or maybe his fashionable French motto means something else entirely, something connected with his diplomatic change of alliance. It could have been part of any kind of game of courtly love that was being woven around the jousts that year. There's no really reliable documentary evidence that Henry took any interest in Anne Boleyn until the summer of 1527. That's when the chance survival of some accounts show Henry giving her gifts at Beaulieu while he was there on his summer progress. And then Henry sends his secretary, William Knight, on a scary mission to Rome to ask Pope Clement for permission to marry her. Now, it's in the papers that Knight was carrying that Henry makes it perfectly plain that he's already, by then, sleeping with Anne. So by the summer of 1527, Anne was definitely Henry's new mistress.
1: At some point, Henry wrote a series of letters to Anne. Even though he later tried to destroy everything to do with her, 17 of these letters survived. They were apparently stolen and smuggled out of the country and eventually found their way to the Vatican in Rome. The chief suspect, in fact, is a Catholic cardinal who left England hurriedly in 1529 and suffered the indignity of having his bag searched at the Channel. Well, that may give us some kind of
0: clue as to the date the letters were written. But it's only a guess. Now, at first sight, do you think that letters like these would give us a wonderful insight into Henry's relationship with Anne? But when you start to read them, they're frustrating, disappointing. To start with, they're all by Henry. (laughs) Now, some historians who should know better have tried to reconstruct Anne's replies and built whole interpretations and dates for their relationship on what they imagine she might have written. But since none of Henry's letters are dated, we can't possibly put them in any kind of order. And so trying to imagine how Anne might have written back in between isn't even clutching at historical straws. We certainly should not be using this kind of guesswork as historical evidence.
1: Very unusually for documents dating from Henry's court, the letters are often in French. That at least seems to confirm our guess that it was Anne's Frenchness that was her attraction for Henry. But we don't know whether this was personally or politically And the fact is that that's just about the only decent historical conclusion you can draw from these letters. The big problem is that the letters are expressed in the language of courtly love. Now, this was a courtly culture that had been imported from the fashionable court in Burgundy, just like the formality and fantasy that surrounded Henry's favourite, jousting. In fact, the two were often connected. Competitors tilted in honour of their so-called mistresses, chosen for the day as part of a narrative of elaborate play-acting and storytelling that was woven around the tournament.
0: Well, this courtly love also spilled out beyond the joust and into flirtations between young courtiers who exchanged tokens and letters like those Henry wrote to Anne. The historian Eric Ives has very sensibly suggested that in a society like this, where marriages were arranged as business deals, this kind of formalised correspondence was a way of letting young people flirt harmlessly with each other without getting too involved or creating any misunderstanding.
1: Well, that may be true for the courtiers, but Henry's letters have created all kinds of misunderstandings for historians ever since they were first published in 1720. Well, without any other documents about Anne, it's no surprise. What do you make for example of the letter in which henry asks anne if he can call her my true loyal mistress and friend and if she will be his alone he even promises he will cast off all
0: others well to modernize that looks pretty plain problem is that in the traditions of courtly love this kind of thing doesn't mean much at all it's the kind of flowery prose any young blade might write to one of the ladies at court for example, on the morning of a joust, in which he'd been chosen to play the part of defending her honour. Young courtiers in fact, often call women mistress, even promise to cast off all others. they were everyday terms of courtly respect. It really doesn't tell us very much at all about their actual relationship. It might be a flirtation. It might be part of a game. It might be forbidden love. There's just no way of telling. And nor, therefore, do Henry's courtly letters to Anne tell us very much at all about their relationship. Just occasionally,
1: however, in his letters, Henry does seem to step outside this kind of convention. When he calls Anne his darling and writes that he's wishing myself specially an evening in my sweetheart's arms, whose pretty ducks I trust shortly to kiss, it doesn't seem to leave much room for doubt. Because duck, D-U-K-K, is a Tudor word for breast. Now, unless we're missing something here, which in the elaborate conventions of courtly love is entirely possible... This doesn't look like polite romancing. It's difficult to conclude anything from this letter other than that Henry and Anne were sleeping together. But if that's the correct conclusion, and when it could have been, we have no idea. And it doesn't, after all, tell us anything we didn't
0: already know. So the king's letters may or may not show that he thought he was in love with Anne. In June 1529, the French ambassador says that Henry was quelque peu amoureux, a little bit in love. Uh, But in a way, it's irrelevant whether he was or not. As historian Eric Ives says, English kings never marry the women they love. They keep them as their mistresses. The one exception was Edward IV, who secretly married Elizabeth Woodville in 1464. She was the first English woman to marry an English king since the Norman Conquest. Now, this is important. Elizabeth Woodville was a great queen, far more capable at playing the role of consul than Anne ever was. Even so... Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was a political disaster, causing such resentment that his wife, like Anne, was never accepted by many at court. After Edward's death, their two children were secretly murdered in the Tower of London, probably on the orders of Richard III, though the Richard III Society, of course, have other suspects.
1: Now, Henry was in many ways like his grandfather, Edward IV. More important, he must have known about his grandmother and the fate of his own mother's two younger brothers in the Tower. It was certainly no encouragement at all to marry the daughter of a minor English family, however besotted with her he might be. And after Anne, the only other English women to marry an English king were Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife who died after giving birth, Catherine Howard, his fifth, who, like Anne, was executed, and Catherine Parr, his sixth, who survived him. That's until the not very English-sounding Mary of Teck married the future George V in 1893, Now, that was a dynastic
0: match that turned into a love affair. Even if it's beside the point, we'd still all like to know what Henry felt. But trying to get inside the head of historical characters is never a good idea, and here we're grasping at documentary straws. In January 1529, for example, Cardinal Campeggio, over in England to investigate Henry's divorce case, reported that Henry and Anne were kissing in public like a married couple, but, holding out on any further conjunction. Well, if that sounds clear enough, we have to remember what was going on at the time. Henry wanted the cardinal to decide the case against Catherine in his favour. So, of course, Henry wanted him to think he'd found a new potential wife, Anne, but was keeping a religious distance from her. Six months later, the French ambassador was hinting that Henry and Anne were back in bed together and that the king wanted to hurry up with the divorce case in case she got pregnant. But just stop for a moment. If Henry wanted to keep the French on their toes, he might well want them to think that, especially in the summer of 1529, when they were threatening to abandon him and sign a deal with the Spanish. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So we're just left with nothing but gossip, unreliable gossip. We have to face the disappointing fact that we really know nothing about Henry's feelings for Anne in these years. All we can deduce is that he was in absolutely no hurry to marry her.
1: Henry was in no hurry to marry Anne, but he certainly didn't tell her that. This wasn't a partnership of equals like the one he'd had for so long with his wife Catherine. As George Bernard has shown, for all Henry's extravagant expressions of courtly affection, he kept Anne informed about his divorce campaign's progress, but little more when Henry's two envoys, Edward Fox and Stephen Gardner, set off for the Pope's temporary hideout in Orvieto in February 1528, Henry instructed them to drop in at Hever Castle in Kent to see Anne on their way to the Channel. Anne had been sent home and wouldn't properly return to Henry's court until October of that year. Now, the two men had worked closely with Henry for months, but Anne obviously didn't really know them. We say that because... Fox got back in May and met Henry in Greenwich, and Anne happened to be there that day, but she mistook Edward Fox for Stephen Gardner. Now, it's true that Fox had survived a shipwreck on his way to Italy and arrived at the Pope with only the clothes he stood up in, but he can hardly have been unrecognisable by the time he got home. Henry then kicked Anne out of the room so that he could get down to examining Fox's documents. We suggest that Henry was using these months in 1528 to string his divorce out and delay it for diplomatic reasons. We talk about that in our series on Henry VIII and his break with Rome. But it's no wonder, if that was the case, he didn't want Anne to know. It may even be the reason she'd been packed off home to Hever Castle.
0: Anne was just a pawn in Henry's game. In July 1528, Anne was back in Hever Castle. And there she went down with a dreaded sweating sickness. Henry sent his second best doctor. But all the while, Catherine continued to live at court, stitching Henry's shirts, exchanging letters every three days. Henry went on visiting her apartments until at least late 1529. By then, Anne was screaming at Henry in front of everyone else that she was wasting her time with him. Quotes, farewell to my time and youth spent to no purpose at all. Now, we might have some fun with historical speculation here. It's what everybody seems to do with these little pieces of evidence about Anne. What Anne's shouting might suggest is that she believed she was waiting to marry Henry, that she wasn't just serving out her time as his mistress and looking for some suitable marriage for herself. Anne knew perfectly well from her sister's case that Henry would be quite happy to have a married mistress. Or maybe it means something completely different. Maybe it means that she was expecting Henry to find someone for her and the shouting farewell to my time and youth spent to no purpose at all was because he hadn't bothered and couldn't find anyone. But now we're really just making it up, like everyone else. So much historical writing about Anne is either, as the American historian Lacey Boldman Smith put it many years ago, just tradition, or we're trying to make historical bricks out of documentary straw. The point is, none of us really knows. What we can see clearly enough is that even in 1531, Henry was in no hurry to marry Anne. Even when he finally sent Catherine away, and Anne's 30th birthday approached, there was still no sign of giving her a title that would fit her out as a queen-to-be. It really doesn't look as if Henry was infatuated with Anne Boleyn.
1: By now, Anne had plenty of enemies at court. In October 1529, the French ambassador reported that Anne's father was going round court complaining that people didn't love la demoiselle anymore. Anne's own uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, her mother's aristocratic brother, was openly going round saying he wished they'd get back to the Spanish alliance. He claimed he'd rather have lost one of his hands than get mixed up in the divorce. And then his wife was rusticated from court for a while for smuggling a letter to Catherine,
0: hidden in an orange. Catherine had other influential supporters too. One was the Chancellor, Thomas, later St Thomas, Moore. Another was Anne's old boyfriend, Percy's father-in-law... You following this? The Earl of Shrewsbury, one of the powerhouses of the north. Another was the king's own sister, as we've seen, Mary, who'd employed Anne as a maid in France. Also her jousting husband, Henry's best friend. They made no secret at all of their disapproval of Anne. By 1531, even the court preachers were delivering sermons that attacked Henry's plan to divorce.
1: Historian Eric Ives, his biography is well worth reading describes Anne in these months as waspish, and he pictures her going around saying off with their heads like Lewis Carroll's Queen of Hearts. In retaliation at the black mood around her, she had a motto embroidered on her servant's livery. It read, si sera groin, groin Which means, This is how it's going to be, however much people grumble. It wasn't much of a statement of confidence. And then someone pointed out that the original quotation had been "Groin qui groin, vive Bourgogne," which meant, however much people grumble, "Long live Burgundy." Maybe Anne had misremembered it from her year at the Burgundian court when she was twelve or thirteen. The embarrassing thing was that Burgundy now belonged to Charles V, who was the Spanish king, Catherine's nephew, and the arch-opponent of the divorce. Well, Anne quickly removed her new motto from her servant's livery.
0: That Christmas, 1531, Anne presided at court for the first time. The Tudor chronicler, Edward Hall, remembered it. A grim experience. Here was, he said, no mirth because the Queen and the ladies were absent. In his opinion, Anne was clearly no lady. Even though in the new year, 1532, she would at last move into Catherine's old apartments at Greenwich. At Christmas, there had been roomfuls of presents for Anne, but none for Catherine. Henry had even banned his gentleman from sending her any. But rumours were now reaching Rome that Henry was losing interest in Anne. Well, the Pope didn't know how reliable they were, and we don't know either. But there is a clue. Henry spent over £327 on Anne just in November and December 1529. But in the whole of the next year, 1530, he only spent £220, and the same the following year. The figure only climbs back up to £330 in 1532, and that was the year that Henry made Anne, Marchioness of Pembroke, took her to France. But 50 quid of that was money Henry lost to her in 10 days playing a card game called Pope Julius. So perhaps the reports reaching the Pope were
1: correct. Now, Pope Julius was the one who'd given Henry and Catherine their permission to marry. Hmm. However, losing interest or not, losing at cards or not, Henry lets Anne get pregnant in November 1532, then marries her, probably in January 1533 in secret. It could be seen as nothing more than the best of a bad job, and we say that because without a papal divorce, no serious royal family would allow their daughter to marry him. But Henry needed a new heir to replace Mary, whom his divorce was making
0: illegitimate. But even as the king's new pregnant wife, Anne's popularity did not improve. Well, Henry had finally married Anne in January 1533. It was a secret ceremony. That was partly because it would offend the French. Partly, we might guess, it was because Anne was so widely disliked. If Henry had to marry her, then he wasn't going to make a big show of it. But a wife can't be kept hidden for long, and especially a pregnant one. It was important for Henry to try to achieve some kind of queenly magnificence for Anne, since her regal reputation would strongly affect his own. 12th of April 1533 was Holy Saturday, the day before Easter Sunday. In the evening, Anne went to the solemn Easter Vigil in the Chapel Royal. She made no effort at all to hide the fact that she was now five months pregnant but the effect was perhaps not quite what she had hoped. Charles V's ambassador reported that, "quotes all the world is astonished at it, for it looks like a dream, and even those who took her part know not whether to laugh or cry. Well, he might be expected to say that, but across England, people were leaving church services in protest when they were asked to pray for Anne. It was forbidden on pain of death to call Catherine Queen, but they were still cheering her and her daughter Mary wherever they went.
1: Henry had Anne crowned six weeks later on the 1st of June 1533. This was no run-of-the-mill ceremony and the king had apparently first begun making preparations for it the previous summer. Anne was given St Edward's crown, which had only ever been worn by monarchs. All the nobility were put on display in boats along the Thames. The French ambassador, Jean de Danvy, rode in the procession and was jeered by the crowd as horse and knave and French dog was a bit of traditional fun. Everything was intended to show London's crowds that England's most powerful people and Henry's most powerful allies approved of his new wife. It was followed by a magnificent banquet, and by jousting, there's a surprise, Charles V's ambassador Chapuis recorded the whole business as, quotes, a cold, thin, and very unpleasant thing to the great regret, anger, and reluctance not only of the common people, but also of all the rest. But of course he would say that. Chapuis also remarked that Henry and Anne seemed to have had little to do with each other that summer. Well, of course he would say that too. And Anne was by then heavily pregnant and being
0: shipped off for her long confinement as the contemporary custom was. On the 7th of September, 1533, Elizabeth was born, a redhead like her father. But as historian Eric Ives says, there's no evidence of the crushing psychological blow that some have supposed. Yes, the jousts were cancelled, but jousts were only ever for the birth of boys. The long te diems were sung for Elizabeth in the Royal Chapel and at St Paul's, and letters were sent out announcing the birth of Henry's first legitimate child. The proud father ordered bonfires to celebrate his daughter's christening and free wine in the streets of London. George Bernard found a number of reports that the king and his new queen were happy together that autumn. By the spring of 1534, she was reported to be pregnant again, this time no baby came, possibly Anne miscarried. By the middle of 1534 reports began to emerge that the couple were arguing. Anne was ticking him off for philandering. He shouted back that she would still be a lady's maid were it not for him. As Bernard points out Anne was in a much weaker position than most queens who had aristocratic or royal status of their own and had been married in diplomatic alliances between nations. Anne had come from nowhere and her position depended solely on Henry's support. No wonder she was sensitive about rivals. But the evidence suggests that Henry went on looking around at the other ladies' maids at court, though by 1535 the couple were reported to be getting along again. Anne's downfall
1: is a long and complex story, and it would take more than a few minutes to analyse. It was long supposed that her downfall was the result of a falling out between Anne and Thomas Cromwell in 1535 but Dermot McCulloch, who has written the most recent and desk-splinteringly enormous biography of Thomas Cromwell, has argued that there'd always been tensions between Cromwell and Anne. Cromwell, after all, had always been a supporter of Catherine and may have felt Anne was holding his career back. By early 1536, Cromwell was in touch with Mary, Catherine's daughter, perhaps with a view to putting her back in line for the throne. McCulloch's argument is that Cromwell picked up rumours from the French, who you recall also never liked Anne, that she was guilty of adultery, and then used those to turn Henry against her.
0: Now, dear know McCulloch knows more about all of this than any of us will ever know, and he's probably right. But even McCulloch has to rely on the gossip of Chapuis, Charles V's ambassador, who deeply disliked Anne. Also on these rumours from the French, and on sources written long after the event... Like everything else about Anne, mostly you have to say that we just don't know. For what it's worth, Anne's biographer George Bernard, reckons it's not impossible that Anne was guilty of adultery, though not of adultery with 100 men as she was charged. But Bernard agrees that nothing can be proved.
1: The broader context is that Thomas Cromwell extracted much of the evidence against Anne through torture, forcing her musician Smeaton to confess by tightening a knotted rope around his eyes. It was Cromwell who would introduced the use of torture into England for the extraction of evidence. And then you have to look at the statistics. Henry had executed two of his father's most hated advisers in the first 14 months of his reign. In 1513, he executed a nobleman who had been imprisoned by his father. And in 1521, he executed the Duke of Buckingham for plotting against him. Dukes of Buckingham were always getting executed. In 1531, he executed a landowner, caught up in a feud among the Welsh aristocracy. So, 21 years of Henry's reign, five
0: executions of influential people. But Anne Boleyn was just one of at least 33 people then executed in the six years between Thomas Cromwell's rise to any position of influence and his death in 1540. Now, whatever your view of Cromwell, and you have to say that these days most of his supposed achievements are disputed by most historians, The statistic speaks for itself. Cromwell was a totalitarian thug with a Stalinist taste for torture and execution as a tool of power. Anne was just one of his victims.
1: Anne was executed, beheaded with a sword by a French executioner. The very next day, Henry was engaged to one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting, that's 27-year-old Jane Seymour, whom he'd been seeing for months, perhaps, according to Bernard, over a year He married her two days later. Now Henry would wipe the real Anne from history, with such success that we still know really hardly anything about her. All we've been left with, as we've said before, is her
0: unquiet ghost. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.